Happy Monday, my loves, and welcome back to the One Take Wonder podcast with the Hot Weird Girl. I'm the Hot Weird Girl in question, Alexia, and you can catch up with me on every single social media platform. That's Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram at Hot Weird Girl. That's girl with the zero instead of an I. And today's episode, I want to get a trigger warning that we're going to be discussing a lot of eating disorders, body dysmorphia, diets, and just general diet talk. I know that can be a sensitive subject for some people, and I do want to let you know that the entirety of this episode is dedicated to diet culture, specifically breaking down the wild and weird world of the internet diet culture as it exists in 2023. So if that sounds like you're something you're interested in, I would love if you stay tuned. I want to start off this episode by reading an excerpt from a really great article by the Washington Post called The Food Industry Pays Influencer Dietitian to Shape Your Eating Habits. Now this specific article isn't paywalled and I've also included the link to the article in my Um, podcast bio because I think it's really important that you read the article in its entirety. But a relevant snippet is the food, beverage, and dietary supplement industries are paying dozens of registered dietitians that collectively have millions of social media followers to help sell products and deliver industry-friendly messages on Instagram and TikTok, according to an analysis by the Washington Post in the examination, a new nonprofit newsroom specializing in global public health reporting. The analysis of thousands of posts found that companies and industry groups paid dietitians for content that encouraged viewers to eat candy and ice cream, downplayed the health risks, of highly processed foods and pushed unproven supplements, messages that run counter to decades of scientific evidence about healthy eating. The review found that among 68 dietitians with 10,000 or more social media followers on TikTok or Instagram, about half had promoted food, beverage, or supplements to their combined 11 million followers within the past year. By paying registered dietitians, health professionals who specialize in nutrition, the food industry is moving beyond the world of ordinary online influencers to harness the prestige of credentialed experts to deliver commercial messages. Now, this revelation is particularly horrifying when you consider what social space registered dietitians on social media occupy. We all know that growing up in America in the early 2000s, there was a big push for diet culture. Anorexia thin, heroin chic, that was what was in. Noticeable curves on white women was abhorred. Even the standard for what being like black thick was back then was really just maybe a size six with a large ass. The video vixens of 2003 were still quite petite and very skinny. And when I say petite, I'm also, I'm talking about stature, not necessarily weight, but they tended to be short and skinny with curvier bodies. Whereas white women, the beauty standard was tall and skinny, almost emaciated. And those were very difficult times, I think, for everyone to grow up in. Even though I was a young child, I still remember being conscious of what I ate because diets were peddled at you through Seventeen Magazine and Teen Vogue and all the characters on your favorite shows, even Disney Channel shows, were talking about how they could adjust or shrink their figure. As long as I've been alive, I've been hypercognizant of the policing of women's bodies in particular, the desire to keep women small, shrunken, or with proportions that are sexually pleasing to men. And there's very much been an understanding that my body is not my own. And all of these standards, the push for borderline anorexia, if not a complete embrasure of anorexia itself, was under the guise of health. The healthiest you can be is being extremely skinny, is having your ribs shown with no other consideration 
for how you can be healthy at different body sizes. There was no celebration of the muscled form on a woman. One thing you'll notice if you pay attention to 80s bodies trends versus 90s bodies trends and early 2000s bodies trends is in the 80s, it was very much prioritized for women to have visible muscle. Madonna arms were coveted by women everywhere. Home workout routines that promised great tight glutes and strong arms with abs were seen as the ideal beauty standard. But as we moved into thinner and thinner body pictures, we began to get women who had to prioritize losing that muscle tone in order to obtain the smallest sizes. Because while I'm not sure if muscle weighs as much as fat, I think that's one of those lies that you're told. And I remember seeing that that's not the case. The way a muscled body can fit into a size zero is very different than how a non-muscled body can fit into a size zero. You understand what I'm trying to say? Like there's just a difference in the way your body looks when it's nourished and strong versus when you're going for the sickly starving look. Because so much of the body standards of my childhood were completely unrealistic, I vividly remember a pushback starting sometime when I was in middle school, or maybe it was just what was introduced to me through, you know, middle school health class, that there was a push to get away from thinking that these magazines and these Rachel Ray on, you know, her fifth attempt to stop binge eating and start, you know, eating healthy, Oprah's constant weight loss pushes to understand that this was not what health was and to try to give you basic diet advice. And I think it created an entire generation, these older Gen Zs, these younger millennials, or just Gen Z in general, of people who understood that what the media was showing us wasn't a good representation of health. And that health knowledge was, you know, the food pyramid, except for the fact that the food pyramid has been totally um, eroded by the dairy and the grain industry. And like, nobody should really be drinking the breast milk of other animals, but that is a separate podcast for a different day. And what we're ultimately coming to is that like you can't trust the media for diet advice and so i think it primed people in my age group and younger to really turn to alternative sources for our nutrition information and that's something that the article points out that millennials and gen z's have become accustomed to getting their dietary information from people who seem to know what they're talking about who seem to be the face of good common sense health information like these registered dietitians. And so I think that's why this article and this revelation, although people had been calling suspicions for a long time, and I'll get into when I started calling suspicions, was extremely shocking because here you have people who are using that same story I told you that I grew up in a thin, you know, prioritizing culture that I was shamed for my weight. And here's the real truth of how to be healthy and a sea of workout videos that tell you to do things that constrain your muscles, overexert you, or just, you know, won't benefit you at all. Here are ways to work out that are normal and healthy. And all of it was, I don't know, a giant fucking lie to sell us aspartame. I want to start with another, or not start, but continue with another snippet from the article. As the World Health Organization raised questions this summer about the risks of a popular artificial sweetener, a new hashtag began spreading on the social media accounts of health professionals. Hashtag safety of aspartame. Steph Grasso, a registered dietitian from Oakton, VA, used the hashtag and told her 2.2 million followers on TikTok that the WHO warnings about artificial sweeteners were, quote, clickbait based on, quote, low quality science. 
Another dietitian, Kara Harbstreet of Kansas City, reassured her Instagram followers not to worry about, quote, fear-mongering headlines about aspartame because, quote, the evidence doesn't suggest there's a reason for concern. In a third video, Mary Ellen Phipps, a Houston-area dietitian who specializes in diabetes care, sipped from a glass of soda and told her Instagram viewers that artificial sweeteners, quote, satisfy the desire for sweetness without affecting blood sugar or insulin levels. What these dietitians didn't make clear was that they were paid to post the videos by American Beverage, a trade and lobbying group representing Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and other companies. In all, at least 35 posts from a dozen health professionals were part of a coordinated campaign by American Beverage. The trade group paid an undisclosed amount to 10 registered dietitians, as well as a physician and a fitness influencer, to use their social media accounts to help blunt the WHO's claim that aspartame, a mainstay of diet coke and other sodas is ineffective for weight loss and possibly carcinogenic. End quote from the reading. I cannot tell you how much it fucking pisses me off. And this is honestly when I started to suspect things when all of these skinny bitches, and it absolutely matters that we're skinny, and we're going to totally talk about that in like 10 minutes or so, we're walking around saying like, satisfy your cravings by drinking soda. Soda's not bad for you. It's just more diet mongering. Aspartame is going to fucking kill you nobody should be drinking soda. Even like the health sodas, like the ones that are for your digestive tract, you are better off drinking water and juice. And when I say juice, I don't mean that weird sugary stuff. I'm talking about drink your juice like a toddler, put like 25% juice and 75% water in order to make 100% of a drink that's not going to fast track you into an early grave or diabetes. The fact that these women use their, and I suppose it wasn't all women, But in the article and the examples at the Washington Post, and again, I really encourage you to read the article link to is we're fooling people by preying on people's insecurities of not feeling thin enough, not feeling good enough to sell you a product that is known to give you cancer, that is used to remove the rust off of cars, that has always, always been historically fucked up, that pays people millions millions, multi-millions of dollars to execute all the pleasure centers in your brain whenever you take a drink so that you become addicted and keep going back to the drink, even though you know it's going to kill you, even though it's making you fat and sluggish and all these other things. And I want to interject here and say that I'm very much of the school of thought that fat is not a pejorative word. It's simply a descriptor. And I think by hiding behind the word or using terms like, you know, larger or overweight, we're sort of beating around the bush. And I would never say this as a way to shame fat people, but rather I've learned from fat activists that just not calling it what it is, isn't helpful at all. So I'm going to be using the word fat as I continue to talk about this podcast episode. But these drinks that are just so fucking bad for you are being hawked. And I'm telling you as a content creator who's been blessed enough to receive brand deals herself, what they were getting paid was not cheap. The calling rate for these influencers and these content creators who get paid to sip out of, you know, diet cola on camera, knowing that everything in their training and every, especially the nutritional aspect suggests that they should never be recommending these products to people is, in my opinion, an ethical violation. And then the article goes on to detail how it's also a Federal Trade Commission, FTC for short, violation because they weren't properly disclosing the fact that it's ads. At a very odd place culturally where no one wants to have a frank discussion about how much of the food pushed on Americans is harming us. 
even that statement itself, something that would have normally been accepted like five, 10 years ago is now becoming a bit controversial with people. And again, I'm going to reference back to the article trying to normalize or destigmatize all foods. And I, I understand the underlying principle, right? Poverty forces people to turn to calorie dense, nutritionally deficit foods. Um, you know, if the only grocery store in your area is a Dollar Tree, you're probably not getting fresh eggs or cheese. And if you even have access to veggies in the frozen food section, the meager frozen food section that most Dollar Trees, especially those Dollar Trees in low income areas have. So I really admire people like Dollar Tree dinners who go out and show you how to make nutritious meals with the little that you have. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that in the grocery store, you're supposed to count the fact that Brussels sprouts may be I don't know, you're serving a Brussels sprouts, maybe 30 calories, and so is that candy bar. The Brussels sprouts are always going to be better for you. Always. It's this weird school of thought that's trying to undo decades of social programming that encourages people to harm their bodies into the pursuit of a very narrow and, again, emaciated body ideal. But and I think it comes down to, you know, the very weird world of like fat acceptance, which is something that you have to kind of approach delicately because ultimately I think it comes from people who are really struggling. And so there's a level of empathy that I think you have to extend with anyone or with everyone who's in that situation. I'll just tell my own personal story. Over the pandemic, I gained 15 pounds. And when I went to lose it, and I wanted to lose it in a way that was healthy, right? I didn't want to do keto. Also, because I'm pretty sure keto starves your brain. And like, every time I think of keto, I think about the fact that people are eating cream cheese just like by the spoonful. And they're like, yeah, but it's so good for me. And it, like, I'm so lactose intolerant. I would, I'm telling you, I would be hospitalized if I try to eat like that. Um, and I did manage to lose the weight in a healthy manner, but it was so difficult compounded by when I tried to turn to like social media or Instagram or even like Googling articles. By the way, if you're trying to lose weight, livestrong.com has the most like body neutral, just here's how you do it. You don't have to starve yourself. Realistically, you're only going to lose two pounds per week. It's a very prolonged process. You gain weight faster than you lose weight, like very neutral stuff. But because I was trying to lose weight and I was seeing all that stuff on social media, I sort of fell down the rabbit hole of what is body positivity or fat acceptance. I think in the past, these used to be two separate movements, but they sort of couch together. Body positivity on one hand is just the idea that you should be positive no matter what you look like. And I wholly agree with that. I actually wholly agree with fat acceptance. I'll talk about the fringe part. But the idea that your ability to feel beautiful really shouldn't matter whether you're 90 pounds or 300 pounds and that you have the right to be respected as a human being. And fat people are not respected as human beings. I don't have to give you anecdotal stories or proof for that. I know from being in a classroom in American public schools to, I mean, God, even last week I saw you know, a fat man walking down the aisles and this lady looked at him, gave me an eye roll as if I was going to snicker and laugh and eye roll back. Like fat people are treated terribly. People who don't want to live with that reality are simply taking part in the bullying of fat people themselves. That's the anti-fat acceptance thing. Just walk with me here. Listen with me here. We're going to get there. 
but they're just not treated as human beings especially if you are a woman once you cross that line from being like curvy to now you're too fat to be fuckable it's like you don't exist and there's these heartbreaking stories of women in documentaries on social media talking about the fact that their existence is essentially ignored and overlooked because they're not the ideal beauty standard and i I just want to make that clear when I talk about the fact that these fringe parts of the fat acceptance movement are really coming from people who have been badly wounded their whole lives, and so I don't fault them for the conclusions that they come to. Fat acceptance is a movement that says that, you know what, these are our bodies, we ought to just accept it. The fringe part is that if you get too deep into it. And I really think that this is a movement started by people who are chronically online. I don't know how much I believe that fat acceptance is encroaching on normal standards of health or what a doctor would believe or anyone in the real world, but it essentially turns into health denialism where they insist that instead of that health at every size, which is something that means that you can enjoy healthy behaviors at every size, means that your health is completely unaffected by your weight. Um, That is not true. I wish it was true, but it's definitely not. There is no piece of peer-reviewed peer duplicated, I'm totally blanking on the word, but like replicable study that proves that your weight has no impact on your health. And because I grew up with a lot of food sensitivities when I was younger due to ADHD, you know, neurodivergent things, I spent a huge portion of my life underweight and I'm telling you it had an effect on my hair, my, my hair my health. My hair wouldn't grow. Um, I didn't get a consistent period until I was like a sophomore in college. And that was because of birth control. Um, I don't know if it affected how short I am, but I mean, I looked odd and emaciated because I struggled with food sensitivity so much, not an eating disorder. Someday remind me to tell you of the fact that some bitch in middle school started a rumor that I had an eating disorder. And then I had to explain to the teacher that it's just eggs really freaked me out because they made my teeth feel a certain way. Oh my God, my parents had to get involved. It was a whole thing. <sighs> so hard being a neurodivergent child. Anyway, um, so so being thin, like too thin, has a profound effect on your health in the same way that being too heavy has a profound effect on your health. Um, And these people exist in a health denialism where they cling to these very like fringe one-off studies that have never been replicated by um, other peer-reviewed journals that basically say like, no, you know, you can be 400 pounds and healthy. And I think you and I can acknowledge that that's ridiculous, but also because we live in a society that equates health with morality, that if you're not healthy, whether it's because you're disabled or fat or whether because your obesity causes you to experience disability, that you are no longer worthy of respect, that you go to doctor's offices and you get mistreated or shit on, or nobody listens to your ailments at all because the doctor is too focused on your weight. You're not seen as a prospect for dating. And while nobody has the you know, inherent right to be seen as fuckable, there is something so painful about never being asked to a school dance or being seen as a pretty girl in the room at all. I think what these people are trying to grasp at is that we're actually taking control of our health and, you know, we actually are healthy, so you have to respect us. To me, that's what I've always interpreted that movement as. I don't know that it's a legitimate threat. I think it's people who have way too much internet access, who are very deeply 
like they're suffering. And I would recommend um, this YouTube channel called Megan Ann, where she more specifically goes into her experience growing up fat and then having fallen into the fat acceptance movement and how specifically that like niche rabbit hole of, you know, um, I can be healthy at every size actually caused her to be like pre-diabetic. I think she was in her teens or her early twenties, but she basically had to make a huge life change, get weight loss surgery. So she talks about how that mentality had some severe physical consequences for her. And I believe she alludes to some mental consequences as well. If you want a very neutral, empathetic response to this fat acceptance phenomena because what most people engage in is just bullying people for being fat under the guise of debunking health things right you can find any fringe group on the internet that says weird bizarre absolutely fake shit um there is this entire genre and it will pop up like on your algorithm and I'm going back to that episode where we talked about algorithms and how, you know, your For You page, your Twitter feed, YouTube, all of that will not only feed you content that you're interested in, but also content that goes against what you're interested in so that you continue to hate interact with that content because it goes against your ideology. So when you start looking at fat acceptance stuff, you also start looking at stuff where it's people like debunking fat acceptance. And maybe you'd think that they'd go in there with like some peer reviewed articles or breaking down like, hey, I see how people can believe this, but no, like, you know, exercise is something that you need to be engaging in. And we all should be more mindful of our diets, especially in America. And I would also give a shout out to Kiana, Kiana, Kiana Doherty, another person who like Megan Ann really talks about and tackles these issues empathetically and also with a lot of scientific research. But most of it is literally calling fat people like the very heinous names. And then going back to the Washington Post article, also insisting that food has no correlation on your health. I'm going to read another snippet that talks about a dietitian, Jen Messina of North Vancouver, Canada. Ew. And how she posted a video on Instagram where she added a lollipop to a dinner plate. Quote, she told parents that the strategy will prevent a sweets obsession and help kids develop healthier relationships with food. In another Instagram video, she told parents that they can make Halloween less stressful by allowing kids to eat as much candy as they want when they're done trick-or-treating. Quote, this helps decrease the stash and makes it less of a big deal, she wrote in the text alongside the video. Yes, they may barf. That's a great life lesson. She was also paid by the Canadian Sugar Institute, which she disclosed in her post and in an interview. Messina said that while her advice is, quote, non-traditional, her goal is to help parents. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that too much added sugar can contribute to obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, end quote. And I also want to add in with my own piece of research that too much sugar can cause an addiction in your brain, specifically in young children who need our guidance and honestly limitations on how much sugar they consume because the pressure the pleasure centers in your brain are absolutely not going to stop you from going back for more sugar, even though it has profoundly negative consequences on your health. Something that the junk food companies know and understand very, very well, which is why they market so hard to you and pay off influencers who are willing to sell the health of their naive audience down the river for what I assume was maybe a six to 17,000 Canadian dollar check. Nice. So these registered dietitians, these doctors, these health professionals, these nutritional gurus are preying on the insecurities 
of people who are already getting weird misinformation about what's healthy and what's not. The fact that if I went on my phone right now and I Googled healthy diet, and we're doing this in live time, you can hear the in the background. Okay, what pops up? Factor 75, get 50% off plus 20% off the next four boxes, processed junk, holistic nutrition, healthy eating education, sign up for only a blue apron thing, the no junk food grocery store for an exorbitant source per month. And then halfway down the page, the World Health Organization, the CDC, followed by kaboom, more advertisements on weird junk food and odd diets. So if you don't know how to employ critical thinking in media consumption and you just blindly turn to some person or website that tells you like, oh, you know, I have credentials. I would never lead you wrong. And then you end up in this weird health denialism that all the whiles preys on how bad you've probably felt about yourself at some point because of your weight, what are you really to do? And I think it's especially a problem because they give advice that encourages eating disorders while being while also claiming to be particularly hypervigilant. And what they're hypervigilant against is restrictive eating disorders. These people will tell you that any form of calorie counting can be harmful, which calorie counting can be hard for some people because they have mental issues. Oh, that's not a mean. But I mean, yeah, they have mental issues that makes it hard to normally and regularly consume food. Not everyone has that. And also, if you study eating disorders, if you know people that have eating disorders, if you've had an eating disorder yourself, you'll know that like the eating disorder is um, a symptom of a deeper problem. Like it's not, like calorie counting can put you into an eating disorder, obviously. Um, there are some stronger factors in your life, unfortunately, that have probably got you there. You get what I'm trying to say? So they're very hypervigilant against restrictive eating disorders, all while being absurdly skinny. Remember the fact that I pointed out, called someone earlier that she was a skinny bitch? It is very, very weird. And I Googled all of the women in the Washington Post article. None of them wear above a size medium. Just looking at them and clocking them, they're all from like double zeros to like maybe a size six, maybe pushing a size eight. These are American sizes, by the way. And all of them do this thing where they tell you to eat whatever you want. Okay, as someone who was thin, up at like, and oh, I guess I'm still thin now, but very, very thin. Like you could see my ribs thin up until I was 21 years old. And then finally, by the grace of God, worked through some of my food sensitivity issues. I'm telling you that you don't get to that weight by eating all the time or eating a lot. For example, I ate McDonald's, only McDonald's for one entire semester. I would just bully my friend. That is a separate story. But basically I bullied people into taking me to McDonald's every single day. And people were like, wow, how do you weigh 106 pounds? And it was like, yeah, well, this is the only thing I eat ever. And there's only like, you know, 1100 calories. And that's the only thing that I've eaten in two days. Uh, that's why I don't weigh a lot. I'm not eating a lot. Unless you have a hormonal issue or another health condition, for most people, your weight is a reflection of how much you're eating. 
So I find it very bizarre that these dietitians who are so hypervigilant about, you know, and this is a quote from the article, if your kiddo is obsessed with sweets, they likely need more access to sweets rather than less. Melissa Messina wrote in one sponsored Instagram post, and the article goes on to actually feature the Instagram post where she tells people that restricting yourself in any way can cause and induce craving or induce additional cravings. But I know just from looking at their body type that unless they have one of those pesky disorders that make you um, or gives you a an increased metabolism or makes you immune to how much you're eating, that they're not fucking eating like that. There's a weird power play thing going on. I don't know what to call it. I don't know what it would be in the DSM, but there's definitely something about being hyper thin because again, they're very hyper thin women, not just like normal levels of thin, but hyper thin and encouraging everyone around you to eat a diet that you know just by looking at you, you don't physically engage in every day. It's sinister. It's something to think about. I'd love to know your thoughts about it in the feedback section, which you can access if you listen to this podcast on Spotify. Their world, no one can engage in anything that looks like restrictive eating, but they'll continue to encourage you to overeat under the guise of intuitive eating. Now, I think there's something to be said for learning your body's hunger cues, learning when to stop and start. The problem is, is that, and I've said this so many times in this episode, I've said it in past episodes, but American food is so fucked up and designed to get you to stop eating more. I'm going to go back to the Dorito example. Millions of dollars have been spent researching exactly how a Dorito crunches in your mouth, like how we hear that sound travels through our ear canals and it ignites a pleasure center in your brain. The Doritos are bright and colorful like that because our brain is programmed to eat bright and colorful food. They're also designed to be temporarily satiating. So you feel relief and happiness from all the elevated sugar and sodium levels. And then you quickly feel hungry again so you can go back and consume more chip. It is so fucking irresponsible to tell people like, oh, intuitively eat, knowing that the average American public school is serving junk food to kids because that's all they can afford. And it will honestly have to be a separate podcast episode because otherwise this would be an hour and like, y'all know that's just not my vibe. Um, Again, about how one of the most dehumanizing aspects of poverty is that we do not expect in this country to give poor people real food, nutritionally dense food. You can be nutritionally deprived and eat every day just by eating a solely junk food diet. Just by eating in a food desert, you are lacking so many vitamins and minerals that have huge consequences for your health. There's a reason why medical ailments are more prevalent in areas that have food deserts because not getting that proper nutrition, it really fucks you up. Even when you're eating chip after chip and bag after bag and knowing that these companies prey on us in such a malicious way, knowing especially how they prey on poor people to tell people like, oh, well, you can just stop whenever you want to. You can't stop whenever you want to. The food is designed to be malicious and hostile. Twinkies are a work of Satan. Satan designed the Twinkie so that you literally can't stop eating one. I also think, so it's incredibly fucked up when people are like, oh, you just had a candy bar. You can't stop. No, we have dumb mammal brains. The candy bar tastes awesome. It has really high levels of sugar and sodium, both things that our food or our brain craves in order to keep us alive. And your brain was not programmed to be differentiating between the health content of, you know, 
Little Debbie's cakes and grapes. It's kind of stupid. And also those things didn't exist when we were running around the you know, woods half naked doing our own things pre-capitalism. Like someone, there has to be like an intermediary who's actually respected because obviously the WHO and the CDC and pretty much every health organization around the world continuously sounds alarm bells on how these companies are able to get away with completely rotting um, and exploiting mammalian instincts to sell you a product. We want to talk about the horrors of capitalism. Never fucking forget the food and beverage industry. Never forget the crimes against humanity they are committing by like, oh, I mean, God, have you ever heard the stories of the, you know, like Nestle, which by the way, war criminal company, what they do to children in the global South for water is so fucked up, but they'll be like, oh, you're starving. We're going to send you these snacks and then these snacks don't feed them. And then they also erode like the natural resources that exist in this country. So, you know, in the Pacific islands, you used to be able to eat food and fish, but since colonizers came in and made that illegal, and now you have a bunch of Pacific Islanders who are at these like insane weight levels with teeth rotting out of their head because of course they don't get access to healthcare, just being fed all these rotten foods. Like it's really a war crime. And I mean, I say that word a lot, but I really mean that with no ounce of irony. Um, and the fact that these companies have so much money that they can pay to escape regulation and that we have shill presidents who are just more than happy to tap dance in front of the, you know, God that is Ronald McDonald. I mean, fuck. It's really bad. And nutritionists and doctors know this because I know they learn it in school because in order to do research for this podcast, I looked up what the curricula is, curriculum, the curriculum is for like registered dietitians and they learn about all this corruption and these fucking cunts sold you out anyway for a check all while preying on your insecurities and telling you that everything would be okay and wrapping it up with the bow in their weird hyper skinny competition to get you to overeat. Well, you know they're not fucking eating like that because otherwise their bodies would look different. It is a completely perverse and twisted bastardization of love your body at every size while you continue to encourage people to poison their body. The consequences of obesity aren't just long-term. God forbid you lose your mobility and it becomes so much harder to recover. And that's what these people are pushing you into. And they never, ever, ever mention the most common eating disorder experienced by Americans and Canadians, binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is a disorder where, as the name implies, you continue to binge eat. You can't stop. It may be followed by periods of purging, although that sort of borders with bulimia. But oftentimes it's just this insatiable need to eat. It is the most common eating disorder in America. It is also one of the less treated because we have convinced ourselves that eating disorder means a sick emaciated girl or a girl with scars on her knuckles because she continuously makes herself throw up. Another way that fat people are disenfranchised by achieving good health care. Because if a fat girl goes to an eating disorder clinic and says, I can't make myself stop eating, everyone laughs at her like it's a willpower issue and not a serious psychological issue just as serious as depriving yourself of food. And the health outcomes are just the same. When people talk about the ways in which health disorders are the most, I'm not sorry, health disorders, eating disorders are the most dangerous mental disorder to have because they even outpace rates of suicide. When you just look at the way the body gives out, when you don't give it enough food or when you give it too much food, the way that your organs are permanently compromised if you engage in long-term eating disorder behaviors. 
There's something so heartbreaking about knowing that you have the most common form of this disorder because your appearance pisses people off because they're fucking fat phobic. You can't get the help that you need. Again, a fact that these dietitians are well aware of and yet they don't want to mention because then you can't get your fucking, you know, Canadian Sugar Institute or your American beverage sponsorship by telling people the truth, which is that, you know, the stuff is going to kill you. And what they're likely doing is exploiting a disorder you may already have and you may be struggling to get control over. But, you know, hashtag intuitive eating, I guess. I know I've gone really hard on the, you know, influencers and content creators because I don't even think they should have the ethical title of like dietitian, whatever anymore. Nutritionist. Fuck them. I hate them so much. I don't know if you picked up that vibe um, from me just, you know, essentially screaming for the past 35 minutes. But I really think it's just as sick as people who are like, oh, you only need 1200 calories to live. That's insane. You burn more than 1,200 calories in a day simply by sitting on your couch and doing nothing. Don't tell people to eat that little. Your bra- Like, a starving brain is not a brain that thinks well or rationally. But I feel like there have already been so many discussions about how that's harmful. This definitely warrants further explanation. And I think mental note to self, I definitely want to talk about the intentional deprivation of healthy food from the working class and poor people in America, which is a very uniquely Western phenomena in that it can genuinely be easier for the poor in the global South to access fresh food, not water, but fresh food than it is for someone living in inner city or rural America. And I definitely think that's worth exploring. Um, But healthy food is a human rights issue. Food companies need to be held to the highest standard, especially when you consider how much advertising and corporate power they have in our world. There needs to be stricter and heavier regulations, and we need to educate our children on becoming conscious consumers. I know that after this article and after the, you know, the suspicions I started to have about the super, you know, they're all super skinny, why are they advertising for this sort of way, that I will never trust someone under that title again because I I just don't know that you can ethically accept a food sponsorship when you're willing to sell out the health information um, for a couple thousand dollars. And I hope this encourages people to more consciously consume as well. As always, I love when you give me feedback. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Hot Weird Girl. That's Girl with a Zero. And if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Music, Please rate this podcast a five stars. It helps so much. Send it to a friend you think would be interested in this topic. And I will see you next Monday as we start to wrap up season one. I love you. Bye.